scripture reading today comes from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 15, verses 27 through 32. They crucified two robbers with him, one on his right and one on his left. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, and he was numbered with the transgressors. Those passing by were hurling abuse at him, wagging their heads and saying, Ha, you who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. In the same way, the chief priests also, along with the scribes, were mocking him among themselves and saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let this Christ, the King of Israel, now come down from the cross so that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him were also insulting him. Blessing to be here together on this Lord's Day. Let me get that reset there. I don't know what that's doing. I think it's going now. All right. You know, New Year, same problems. Nothing, nothing's really new. But glad that you're here this, this Lord's Day, this first day of the year. We are thankful to that we have the chance and the opportunity to be together, and I can't think of a better way to actually start off a new year than to be with God's people. It is one of the, the best things that I can think of and imagine being able to worship our God and to set our sights on this upcoming year and with our focus and our minds where it ought to be on serving the God of heaven and our Savior. And so we're thankful for your presence here this morning. Maybe you have gotten into a discussion with a friend or a neighbor, someone that you know, and the subject has turned to the topic of salvation, and you've discussed with them about obedience, and perhaps you've brought up the subject of baptism and how baptism is something that is essential and necessary. It's a command that we have in the New Testament in order to be saved and have our sins forgiven. And... Your friend perhaps has objected to that, let's say, in this theoretical discussion where they say, no, 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 we don't, you don't have to be baptized because there's nothing that you have to do to be saved. That would be earning your salvation. That would be work salvation. You don't have to do that because we're saved like the thief on the cross. And you may think that's a bit of a non sequitur, and it's not really related to the discussion at hand. But have you ever run across that and had that discussion? And how have you tried to answer that question? If we are, are we saved like the thief on the cross? Is this objection valid? That's what we want to talk about this morning. We want to think about are we saved like the criminal on the cross? Because some people would say and suggest that we are. Some people would say, no, that we are not. And I think it's worthy of our consideration, our time this morning, to try to answer this question in order that we might be well equipped to discuss this with our friends and our neighbors. And maybe we have people that we know, family members, that have brought this up to our attention and we maybe have gotten stuck in that conversation. We haven't known exactly how to work through that objection. 
And so we want to talk about that this morning to consider if we are indeed saved like the thief on the cross. And you have to first recognize that it is true that the thief was not baptized, at least like the people in Acts 2 on the day of Pentecost. That is a correct uh, uh, statement that he was not baptized like the people in Acts chapter 2 and verse 38. But I think there is a lot more to consider than to just assume that he was never baptized. Like the objection is being brought up by maybe our friends and our neighbors in that hypothetical discussion. There's a lot more to consider actually. Because while we may not be able to say that the thief was baptized, it's equally wrong to make the assumption that the thief was not baptized. Because we just don't have that information. And if we don't have that information, we do not, no one has the room to be able to make an affirmative statement like he wasn't baptized. Because I can think we can show perhaps that there, if you were to think like a lawyer in a court of law and trying to just cast a little bit of doubt on the question, I think there would be enough evidence to bring some doubt to that kind of statement. Because in Mark chapter 15, the reading that we had just a moment ago, what you notice about the thieves that are there in Mark chapter 15 and verse 27, where it says they crucified two robbers with him, one on his right and one on his left. At the very end of that section that we read in verse 32, it says the very last sentence of that verse, those who were crucified with him were also insulting him. That's not the main passage that we go to when we think about the thief on the cross, is it? We usually go to Luke chapter 23, and I want you to go there now with me. But Mark chapter 15 really sets this up. Because what we see is that he is there insulting and mocking Jesus in the Gospel of Mark. That he is right there along with the other thief. And that they are both hurling accusations and mocking Jesus. And what you see in Luke's account, in Luke chapter 23, one of the thieves has a change of heart. In Luke chapter 23 and in verse 40, notice in Luke's account what we learn here, that as the, it says in verse 39, one of the criminals who were hanged there was hurling abuse at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other answered, rebuking him, said, Do you not even fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed are suffering justly, for we are receiving what we deserve for our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. <clears throat> what you see is a completely different attitude, a completely different kind of mindset, and that his words are not hurling accusations. Now he's defending Jesus. That's a beautiful description and picture of what repentance is. That repentance is a change of heart, a change of mind, and change of conviction that leads to a change in action. He was first insulting Jesus and now he is defending Jesus. And so what we see that the thief, he understands something about repentance and the necessity of it. And I think you could make a pretty decent case that, that John the Baptist is the one who is preaching repentance and Jesus after him. That they were both preaching a message of repentance. If you go to the Gospel of Mark, in Mark chapter 1, at the very beginning of this chapter, in Mark chapter 1 and verse 4, as 
Mark is introducing to us the, the gospel of Jesus and he is preparing us for Jesus' ministry to understand who Jesus is. He actually begins with John. And he says that John is preparing the way for Jesus. And in verse 4, John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The message of repentance is what, uh, what John was preaching. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand was his message. He wanted people to learn that they needed to repent of their sins. John also preached baptism, didn't he? And that baptism is for the forgiveness of sins, I would have you note there. The baptism of John was for the forgiveness of sins. That's exactly the same Greek language and everything is verbatim what it is in Acts 2.38. And it is for the forgiveness of sins. And so you continue on to think about this thief and where might he have heard about repentance and things of that nature? John, in his ministry, he prepared people for Jesus. And the thief was able to identify who Jesus was, wasn't he? That as he was rebuking that other thief in the Gospel of Luke in those verses that we just read, he is defending Jesus. That he is dying unjustly. That he does not deserve to die. He's the perfect Lamb of God. And that was exactly what John was preaching in, in Mark chapter 1 and verses 7 and 8. And it says, and he was preaching and saying, After me one is coming who is mightier than I, and I am not fit to stoop down and untie the thong of his sandals. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. John was trying to get people to be prepared to be able to identify the Messiah, the Christ, the Savior that was to come. John was preparing people for that. And the thief was able to identify Jesus on the cross that this is the one. And John preached a message about the kingdom in Matthew chapter 3. In Matthew chapter 3, if you want to turn there, you'll remember that the thief, as he was asking Jesus to remember me when you come, when you come into your kingdom. That kingdom language, that's exactly what John was preaching in Matthew chapter 3 and verse 2. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. What we learn is that the thief, he understands some concept about Jesus as the king and coming into his kingdom. Where might he have been able to get some of this, uh, these ideas? And whenever you think about who was coming, and the effect that John had in preaching around Jerusalem and Judea, that we learn in Mark's account, in Mark chapter 1, it says, and all the country of Judea was going out to him and all the people of Jerusalem, and they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River confessing their sins. What you get is that John has a very large audience that he is being very effective and that many people are coming to hear him. And that if they're not, if they are then responding to him and his message, they're repenting, they're being baptized. And we also learn in the Gospel of John, in John chapter 3, in John chapter 3, that Jesus and his disciples were beginning to baptize. In John chapter 3 and in verse 22, 
It says, After these things, Jesus and His disciples came into the land of Judea, and there He was spending time with them and baptizing. John also was baptizing in Anian near Salim, because there was much water there, and people were coming and were being baptized. For John had not yet been thrown into prison. Therefore there arose a discussion on the part of John's disciples with a Jew about purification. And there's this discussion that takes place and John begins to talk about how he must decrease but Jesus must increase. And you continue on in chapter 4 in verse 1, Therefore when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus Himself was not baptizing, but His disciples were. What we learn is that John was very effective, but then Jesus in His early ministry, His apostles and His disciples, they were baptizing. They were baptizing more people than John. And what I think we need to understand is that there's a very robust, there's a very large group of people who are coming and hearing a message about repentance and the kingdom and about baptism. You think we have some doubt now maybe in our mind that perhaps this thief, maybe he has come across this message of repentance. And I'm not saying he was baptized. I'm just saying perhaps he has heard of this from John or Jesus or one of Jesus' disciples. And that perhaps maybe, just maybe, of all the people that were able to hear about this message of repentance and kingdom and baptism, is it possible that he heard the same message and that he was baptized too? Where might he have learned some of these things? Because it becomes very obvious that this thief is no dummy. That he has some insight into some spiritual truths that are very important. And that he wants to make his life right before he dies. And so yes, it is true that the thief was not baptized like people in Acts chapter 2 and verse 38. But, he certainly had some insight into some things that were extremely important. And it begs the question, where did he learn some of those things? But then we also have to understand that the thief lived under the law of Moses. If you would turn with me to the book of Hebrews, in Hebrews the ninth chapter. In Hebrews chapter 9... What we learn here is as the Hebrew writer is contrasting the Old Covenant with the New Covenant and how much better the New Covenant is because there is a better sacrifice under the New Covenant than under the Old. And he begins there in Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 15 when he, the Hebrew writer says, For this reason, He, that is Jesus, is the mediator of a new covenant. So that since a death has taken place for the redemption of the transgressions that were committed under the first covenant, those who have been called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. For where a covenant is, there must of necessity be the death of the one who made it. For a covenant is valid only when men are dead, for it is never enforced while the one who made it lives. What we see is that the covenant... The new covenant did not come into effect until after the death of Jesus. The death of the one who made that covenant. And so any requirement, any command that we have, like to be baptized, repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, 
like we have in Acts 2.38, any command after the death of Jesus was not in effect before Jesus died. And he goes on in Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 18, talking about the first covenant, the old covenant. He says, Therefore, even the first covenant was not inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment had been spoken by Moses to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of the calves and the goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant which God commanded you. Under the old covenant, there was blood. There was a death that took place, but it was an imperfect sacrifice. It was the sacrifice of an animal. The blood of bulls and of goats. And the animal sacrifices were unable to take away sins. They were imperfect. They were weak. As we learn in Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 4, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. And so while we see that the blood of Jesus that established the new covenant, the death of Christ had not yet taken place when the thief and Jesus are having the conversation that they are having in Luke chapter 23. And so the thief was still under the old covenant, the condition of baptism as a requirement of the new covenant to have the forgiveness of sins was not in effect until after the death and resurrection of Jesus. And so Acts 2.38, while that may apply to us today, it did not apply to the thief then. And so whenever someone might bring up, well, the thief on the cross, we're just saved like him. No, we aren't. He was under a different covenant. He was under a different system than what we are today. And very much related to that idea is that Jesus, if He forgave someone's sins, like He appears to have done in that conversation with the thief in Luke chapter 23, whenever the thief asks for Jesus to remember Him when you come into your kingdom, and Jesus answered him, Truly I say to you, today you shall be with Me in paradise. If Jesus, the Son of God, wanted to forgive sins, He could do that, couldn't He? And that's not something that is unique in the Gospels. The, the thief on the cross is anything but unique in that sense. Because Jesus, time and again, showed that He had the authority to forgive sins. In the Gospel of Luke, earlier in the Gospel, in Luke chapter 5, you remember the, the paralyzed man and his friends that carry him on his mat to come to Jesus and their crowds were so great that they could not enter into the house and so they go up on the roof to enter him in, to, to uh, lower him into the house. In Luke chapter 5 and verse 20, it says, Seeing their faith, he said, Friend, your sins are forgiven you. And so in verse 25, after there's an uproar, people get upset with Jesus being able to forgive sins. He says in verse 25, immediately he got up before them and picked up what he had been lying on and went home glorifying God. That 
Jesus then healed that man to prove that he does have the authority to forgive sins, that he has the power to do that. You remember in the Gospel of John, there's that woman that is brought to Jesus that was supposedly caught in adultery. And they bring him to Jesus and Jesus, he writes in the sand and he would probably spend more time asking what did he write in, in there than thinking about some of the other things. But what he then does is he says, you who are without sin, you cast the first stone. Remember that occasion? Remember what Jesus said to that woman? In John chapter 8 and in verse 11, after everyone left, she said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, I do not condemn you either. Go from now on, sin no more. He says, I don't condemn you. Go from here and sin no more. What words of grace and mercy. And then you remember the woman that came and anointed Jesus' feet? In Luke chapter 7. In the Gospel of Luke in the 7th chapter, Jesus is... In Simon the Pharisee's house, and there's this woman that just appears and comes and begins anointing Jesus' feet and uh, using her hair to dry, and it's just a, a very beautiful picture. And Jesus says to her in verse 50, and he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you, go in peace. She's been saved by her faith. If Jesus wanted to forgive someone's sins, He had the authority and the power to do so. And we are no one to question such actions. But that means that these are not normative cases for what we must do to be saved. But these are exceptional cases in many ways. And so why is it that people want to appeal to the example of the thief on the cross? What does this criminal have? What is so powerful behind this example? Well, I think in many cases it fits the paradigm, the way that many people think about salvation. They already believe from their doctrine that you're saved by faith alone, apart from works of obedience, that there's nothing that you have to do. There have been many debate propositions that have been that you are saved before and without water baptism. Many people have defended that. I think another reason is it's easy, isn't it? It's easy to just tell someone, all you have to do is believe. All you have to do is say the sinner's prayer. The ABCs of, con uh, of salvation, admit, believe, confession. We've heard those kinds of things from so many people. It's this easy road to salvation. But I think also it results that people like this. 
example because there's some confusion about salvation. And there's confusion about how salvation works. Because we tend to think about salvation, you just think about the language that we use. We might ask you, when were you saved? You might ask someone that question. Or are you saved? And we usually think of salvation as a past event that happened at a single point in time, don't we? We think of it as an event. We don't think of it as a process. But I think in one sense, yes, it is an event, but I think it's better described as a process because you can go throughout the Scriptures, and I would love to spend more time with this, but you can go and you can see the idea of salvation as being referred to in the past tense that you were saved by grace through faith, like Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 2. But then we also see that salvation is referred to in the present tense. For example, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and in verse 18, it says, For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. That is a present tense, continuous action, ongoing kind of thing. That we are being saved right now as we remain faithful and committed to the gospel of Jesus Christ, we are being saved. That's not a past event. That's an ongoing process, isn't it? Later on in chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians, in chapter 15 and in verse 2, notice what Paul says here. He says, By which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Or he says that saved, you think, oh, that's past tense. But he says, if you hold fast the word which I preach to you. So you have to remain faithful in the present, don't you? If you're going to be saved. And then of course there's a future sense of salvation that Paul writes about in Romans chapter 13 talking about the day of the Lord. When the day of the Lord comes, we will be saved ultimately and finally then. And what I think we need to understand about salvation is that it's not just a singular past event that happened to us but that it is that if we have been saved in the past, then we must continue to be saved by remaining faithful if we want to be saved in the end. And it's a process. And then it is from beginning to end is how we need to view salvation. And I think we have sometimes misunderstood that where we have only looked at salvation as an event that occurred to us in the past. But if we can understand it as a process, then I think we are better equipped to understand and appreciate the necessity of faithfulness and obedience to Christ if we are to be saved. And I think if we're looking for an example, if someone's looking for an example of someone who is saved by faith alone, apart from any activity or any action or works or obedience, I think the thief is a pretty poor example. We've already looked at he. I think he demonstrates what repentance is. And then he actually rebukes the other thief, doesn't he? And he defends Jesus' innocence. 
Seems like a, someone who is willing to tell someone about Jesus. Someone who's practicing good works and demonstrating those good works through his words. And then whenever he asks to be remembered, that's demonstrating faith and humbling himself before the king. When he asks for Jesus to remember me when you come into your kingdom. This isn't someone who hasn't done anything. This is someone who understands that he needs to give his life to the king. needs to humble himself. And give his life to him. And so if we're dealt with this question, are we saved like the thief on the cross? And on one hand, I think we can answer no. But on the other hand, I think there is a sense in which we could answer yes to this question. Before you start throwing anything at me and saying, oh, Sean, I think you, you're, you're doing good until then. Consider a few things with me where we have some things in common with how this thief was saved. In Luke chapter 23, in Luke chapter 23 and in verse 40. When the thief answers the other thief and rebukes him, and he says, Do you not even fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed are suffering justly, for we are receiving what we deserve for our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And he was saying, Jesus, remember me when you come in your kingdom. And he said to him, Truly I say to you, today you shall be with me in paradise. Words of comfort, words of assurance, words of salvation that Jesus offers this thief. What do we have in common with this? Well, it's obvious that he began to fear God, isn't it? And that he believed that Jesus was the perfect Lamb of God, that Jesus was perfect and innocent, that Jesus did not deserve to die. How many of us fear God? And believe in Jesus as the perfect Lamb of God. It means there's something that we have in common with Him, doesn't it? As we already demonstrated, He repented of His sins. And we've seen that even while He was on the cross, it was a very transformative time period where He was, began with insulting Jesus and mocking Him. And now He's turned to defend Jesus. Remember the very first part of Acts 2.38 and the command that we have from Peter? Repent and be baptized. We've all, been, we've all had to repent of our sins, haven't we? There's something that we share in common with a thief. And then whenever the thief asks for Jesus to remember, remember me when you come in your kingdom. That's a simple request, isn't it? It seems like a very easy request. But I want you to also think about our baptism. And this is something I think we need to help our friends and our neighbors who might believe in uh, salvation by faith alone. This is something that we need to try to help them see that baptism is not 
the moment where we think, hey, look at us, we've saved ourselves. It's not a work that we can boast in. Baptism is us humbling ourselves before the King, before the Lord of our salvation. And it's us asking Him to save us. In 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 21, in 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 21, notice here, he says, corresponding to that, baptism now saves you. Not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience. You know, sometimes if you don't like the ruling that a judge may make in a court of law, what do you do? You make an appeal, don't you? You want to be heard again. That's how Peter is using that word appeal. That we're wanting to be heard. We're wanting our case to be heard. And here, it's in baptism that we ask for God to give us a good, clean conscience. That we are humbling ourselves and we recognize that we have sinned. That we are guilty. We do not deserve life eternal. But it's in baptism and our obedience and our submission to the will of God that we recognize that I am a sinner and that we need God's grace. We need God's forgiveness. We are asking for God to wash away our sins. To remove them. The thief, he asks for Jesus to remember him. When we are baptized, we are asking for Jesus to forgive us. Not all that different, is it? When you think about the thief, he had the same Savior that you and I do, doesn't he? Jesus is the one who saved him. And he was saved by grace, by his own admission, wasn't he? In Luke chapter 23 and verse 40, whenever he says, Do you not even fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed are suffering justly. For we are receiving what we deserve for our deeds. That thief, he understood. He deserved to be dying on that cross. He deserved that death. He understood that any salvation, any forgiveness, it was going to be by God's grace, by God's mercy. Isn't that how you and I are saved? None of us, when we have sinned, none of us deserve life eternal. It is by God's grace and by God's mercy that He has saved us. And then the thief also had the same hope and the same assurance of eternal salvation that you and I do. Jesus offered words of comfort to him, saying, Truly I say to you, today you shall be with me in paradise. And whenever we come to acknowledge Jesus Christ as our Savior, when we are willing to submit ourselves to baptism, to have our sins washed away, when we become a child of God, we have the hope and the blessed assurance of being with our Lord and our Savior for eternity. 
And so, no, we are not saved in precisely the same manner as the thief on the cross. But there is some degree of similarity where we have the same Savior saved by the grace and the mercy of God with the same assurance of eternal salvation. And so in one sense, in one sense, I think we can say, yes, we are saved like the criminal on the cross. The example of the thief on the cross does not prove that we do not have to be baptized in order to be saved. The example of the thief on the cross certainly reminds us of God's amazing love and grace for sinners and the wonderful salvation that is available through Jesus Christ, God's Son and our Savior. Jesus extends His mercy and grace to anyone who is willing to repent of their sins and come to Him to humble themselves and to be obedient to His will. And we've referred to it often today. When the people in Acts chapter 2 and verse 38 heard about Jesus and His death and resurrection, in verse 37 they asked Peter and the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Those are the words that Jesus expects you and I to adhere to and to obey. Those are the words of salvation. Jesus is calling. He wants you to come to Him. He wants you to repent and turn away from your sins. Are you willing to obey Him today? If you will, then you will have the same Savior and the same hope that Jesus gave the thief on that day. This morning, if you need to become a child of God, the water is ready. We're ready to help you. And we encourage you to make your life right with the Lord. If you have been obedient to the gospel and you've been baptized, but you've not been living faithfully for the Lord, would you not come back seeking God's mercy and seeking God's grace, repenting of your sins and confessing those things that you've done which are wrong? If we can help you in some way, would you come now as we stand and as we sing?